0: This is a recording of a sermon from Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit lightsandiego.com. Colossians 1, 15-20, this is how it describes Jesus, the climax of what He does. In verse 15 it says this, "...the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation." For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. Listen to this. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him everything holds together. And he is the head of the body the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything, he might have the supremacy. What a bold statement. The climax of the story is not just for us to have our sins forgiven. The the climax of the story is that Jesus would have supremacy over everything. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself what? All things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So here we are, right? We talked about this. Jesus comes in. He's a fulfillment to Israel's story. He's a fulfillment to this missing piece in the story of our separation from God's presence. And then he comes in and he makes this bold declaration that he is king over everything. But that leaves us with a little bit of a problem. It leaves us with some tension. That tension is this. Why is it that darkness still seems to be reigning? What what is this tension that we live in right now where we believe the theology theology that Jesus is enthroned at the right hand of God, but at the same time we are faced every single day with horrific news from around the world, in our cities, in our neighborhoods, from our families, that something is wrong. So that's one of the things we're going to talk about tonight is, is our current reality. Theologians call this the now and the not yet." How what do we do with this? And this, we're going to talk about that briefly. but also we want to end the night talking about what's our future reality. How does the story end? Because how the story end should be at the very forefront of how we live today. And if we choose to allow that image and the picture that we're going to be talking about tonight at the end of Revelation to be what drives us today, everything changes. So let's talk, but first, before we talk about what's to come, let's talk about right now our current reality. Uh, John Piper, who's a, who's a pastor and an author, talks about our current reality like this. The decisive battle against sin and Satan and sickness and death has been fought and won by the king in his death and resurrection. But the war is not over. Sin must be fought. Satan must be resisted. Sickness must be prayed over and groaned under. And death must be endured until the second coming of the king and the consummation of the kingdom. So it talks about this reality that when Jesus came, it's this image of a wedding. And in ancient Jewish weddings, it would look like this. The the groom would come and to the father and say, I would like to marry your daughter. And there would be this Party, there'd be this big event, and he would pay a bride price for that promise of being with her. He would then go away and spend maybe a year or two building an extension on his father's house so that he could come and get his bride and bring her back to himself. And that is exactly what's happening right now. Jesus came, he paid the price with his own blood to have us back, and he even gave us the seal of his Holy Spirit as like a wedding ring, saying, You're mine, you you belong to me, we belong together, but there is now this space where we live in where he has gone away to prepare a place for us. Is literally the word scripture says. And we wait. We're waiting for this consummation of all things scripture calls it. And we live in this tension, and this is all too familiar because the day I got engaged to Jen was one of the the best days of my life. I mean, it was just so filled with emotion and nervousness, and it was just wild. I can remember it so vividly because of what it did to me. And so I decided that if I was going to propose to Jen, I would do it in front of a lot of people so that peer pressure would be on my side right? So I figured if I asked her in front of enough people, she would feel bad to say no, at least right then, and I have a better shot of her saying yes. So we went to this small Bible college, and in this, in this Bible college had this event every year called Junior Senior Bank, where everyone gets dressed up, and everyone comes out, and that was our first date the previous year. So that year we go there, and I know I bought the ring with my hard-earned janitor money, and and, and so we go to that night, and I asked my friend who's the ASP president, I'm like, at the end of the night, would you mind if I got up and, and I sang a song for her and I proposed? And he's like, that would be amazing. And so I worked out this whole plan, and the, the night of, I stuck the, the wedding ring in my guitar case, I gave it to my friend, and we, and we got ready, showed up at the event, and the whole ride there, she's mad at me, it's so funny. And I'm like, if you only knew, what's this about to happen? Now, I think she's actually mad at me because I hadn't proposed yet. But uh, anyway,s I just turned some worship music on, and that helped. Um. She actually made it worse. Anyways, so we get to the event. We're sitting there eating dinner, and my heart is pounding outside my chest, right, I'm like sweating, I am like, oh my gosh, like, and so at the very end, see, at the end of the night, I'm like, this is go time, so I get up, and I'm like, hey, I gotta use the restroom, she's like, right now, I'm like, yeah, I'll be right back, go back, get my guitar on, and I walk up to the, the stage, and I get there, and everyone's looking at me, and I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I doing, and I just start to like talk, I'm like, you know, my girlfriend, Jen, and I start to sing this really awful song that I wrote for her, and um, so I'm so nervous, I can't, even, I didn't even plug my guitar in, and the video someone literally comes and plugs my guitar in for me it's the only time my knees felt like they were shaking like in my entire life I'm like oh my gosh this is crazy so I sing this awful song to her I sounded terrible but as a, the song is going on she figures out what's happening she starts crying it turns into like the ugly cry you know like oh my gosh and I'm like crying too as I'm singing it sounds even worse and they put my guitar on my back and I go and I drop a money will you marry me and the whole school just cheers and I'm like yeah even if you said no no one could hear you but she said yes, and, and she said yes, and I'm like, I can't believe it, I tricked her, right, you only have to fool one, I heard, so, so she said yes, and so we're walking out of there, and I, I'm, I'm on cloud 11, right, I'm like, this is the best day of my life, so I'll I go into the restroom, and I'm talking to the guy, you know, like, I just got engaged, and he's like, you don't talk to people, you know, like in the restroom, and and so we're walking out together out of the hotel in the hallway, and there's an old man. I just grab his shoulder I'm like, hey, we just got engaged. We're getting married. I kid United literally looks at me, he's like, don't do it. <laughs> I'm like, shut up. <laughs> I just kept running. <laughs> I remember it was such an amazing day in my life. And I remember our wedding day and how beautiful that was and how incredible. And then we waited for that day. But can I tell you, engagement was hard. It was hard. And it was this, this season where we decided as a couple that we wouldn't have sex till we were married. And so there's this point where we are now having, spending more money. We have more stress on our lives. We're planning this a big event. We're planning a wedding in a different city while both working full-time jobs. And I'm finishing up school. And we have this three-month time period where we have more stress than we've ever had, but nothing, none of the benefit of marriage. But we're promised to each other. And oftentimes, it's kind of this image of what the church is now, where we know we're promised to Jesus. We know that someday he's coming back. We know that heaven's waiting for us, but there is this sense where like we're in this in-between time where we're like, man, we just can't wait to be reunited, the bride, with the groom, his church, and Jesus, and we live in that tension, but he's given us this Holy Spirit. He's given us this promise that I will come back for you. And that's our current reality where, where we live. And so this is, this is what, just, just four notes, these are some things that can define the reality that we live in um, right now. Number one is that our fight is against darkness. We live in a reality where there is still two dominions. There's a dominion of darkness and the dominion of light, Scripture calls it, and they are at war, and we are in the middle of it. The second perspective we have to do is the weapon God gave us to fight this battle is love. It's how we advance. It's how we advance light in this world against darkness. It is not through force. It is not through wit. It is not through intelligence or money. It is through and can only be through Love. Third thing, our power that we do this through is not our own strength, but it's through the Holy Spirit that he gave us. It's the only way it's going to be effective. And the last thing is, this battle we're in, we, or the war we're in, we already know that it's been won. And that changes how we fight. It changes how we advance. It changes how we move light forward in this world. And so just a few scriptures to, to illustrate how I'm talking about, so you know I'm not just making this stuff up. The first one, our fight is against darkness. Ephesians 6.12 says this, for we do not fight against, or we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What Paul is saying right here is you think you're fighting against your boss that annoys you. You think you're fighting against your spouse who doesn't get it. You think you're fighting against this or that, or your your parents, or and there's all of these things. You're fighting against the system, or you're fighting against politics, and if this political party was in order everything would be better and the reality is paul is saying none of that is the reality the reality is there is a war going on of dark and light that we can't even see but it is more real than what you can touch and feel and it says that until we recognize that there is a battle going on we will continue to be fighting the wrong things uh, my friend mark weimer who's a pastor down in san diego says i love he says he says people are not the enemy the enemy's the enemy Right, people are not the enemy, and so so many of us get caught up into these these, and they're so seductive, right? These fights, right? Whether it's on social media, whether it's about politics, whether it's about this or that, maybe it's interpersonal. And and Scripture is telling us there's a that's not the battle. There's a bigger one going on, but He also tells us how to advance it. He tells us what to do with it. Tells us how to move it forward. And I love this, Jesus, right before He dies lays out his plan to his disciples on how to advance his kingdom forward. And what he does is he gives them a picture and he takes, off of his, he takes off his robe and he puts on a towel, which would have been the outfit for a slave. He gets down on his feet and he begins to rub the dirt and the mud off the feet of his disciples. Now keep in mind, he's rubbing the dirt and the feet off of Peter, who's about to deny him three times. He's rubbing the dirt and the grime off of Judas' feet, who has already sold him for money and will not turn back. He's, He's rubbing the feet of a betrayer, and he's washing off the dirt, which in that ancient culture would have been the lowest job possible. After he's done, he washes his hands he looks at them, he says, I want you to love each other the way I just loved you. He says this in John 13, verse 35, by this, everyone will know you are my disciples, you are my students, you're my followers, if you love one another. You, know, you want to know what signifies which side you're on? Are you on light side or dark side? It's not how you vote, how you dress. It's not even how you think. It is how you love. Because when you love people that are unlovable, it shows that you have been loved by a God who you didn't earn it. It changes everything. It's how we push light into this world is how we love in a radical way because we've been loved in a radical way. Uh, My nine-year-old Zoe, who we just watched Nacho Libra together, for the first time in her life has been facing bullying at school. And there's this counselor that meets with them, and she's the sweetest Christian lady. Her name's Miss Kathy, and she goes to Daybreak Church, and she told Zoe something that was so profound, and it made sense for her nine-year-old brain. She says, if next time someone bullies you, look at them and say, I like your shoes. She's like, just try it. And so she comes home and she's like, mom, mom. She's like, I tried it and it worked. She's like, the girl that sits next to me that's been bullying me at school, she was just saying some mean things to me. I just looked at her and said, hey, I like your shoes. And she's like, oh, really? Thanks. And in her nine-year-old world, do you know what she just did? She was facing darkness and she chose love and pushed it back. It's powerful. I have a friend who may have the hardest upbringing I've ever heard of someone. Alcoholic father um, who turned into being physically abusive, that drove them to being homeless, was living in and out of campsites and cars, didn't know where his next meal was going to come from. While it was in its worst abusive state, the mom abandoned him, took, took the siblings but left him to be with the dad. Uh, and he continued to, the dad continued to drink, things got worse, and eventually this child became an adult and became bigger and could defend himself and just kind of went off on his own, but the damage had been done. Well, the dad had drinking so much that he ended up having a severe stroke. Ended up being in the hospital for a couple years, and he, and and my friend got a phone call and says, hey, your dad has about six months left to live. And he was the caretaker. He was the only one left who even cared or even knew about his dad's existence. He says, what do you want to do? And my friend has this crux in the world, where, in, in his world where he's like, well, my dad has done nothing but harm me. I don't owe him anything. And in that moment, he chose to do something that changed my life. He quit. He literally dropped out of school. He's going to college full-time cut his hours at work, broke up with his girlfriend, and spent the next six months of his life sitting at his dying alcoholic's father's bedside and watched him die. I remember calling him, I'm like, what would compel you to do that? And he said, Benji, I just wanted my dad to know before he died that someone loved him. And I remember where I was when he told me that, and I just started tearing up because I'm like, how do you even have that kind of capacity to love someone like that? When darkness came at you in full assault your entire life, and rather than returning darkness with darkness, hate with hate, right, he just chose love. It's the power of Jesus. It's what we do right now. We choose love. It's the way we advance light into this world. But we don't do it on our own strength. Don't get me wrong. This is not about you just being like, "I'm going to be the best lover of people in the world. I'm going to write a book and start a blog. I'm going to go and do this and that. I'm going to, you know, rescue, you know, like abandoned rats, you know, for whatever whatever your thing is." No, no, no. Listen. This is not about you leaving here feeling inspired. This is about you leaving here feeling equipped. There's a difference because it talks about that. When Jesus went up, he says, I'm giving you a helper. It says, it's actually better that I go away, it says in John 14. And it says something about the Holy Spirit that he gives. He says, when he comes upon you, he will give you power. In Acts 1.8, it says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all all day and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I love that because when we are being Jesus' witnesses, and a witness is just saying what they saw. I saw Jesus' love this way, and so I am now filled with the Holy Spirit and I am empowered to go and live out the life that I just saw. To go love people in a way that no one would understand. To go tell the bully, I like your shoes, rather than popping them in the mouth. To go sit next to your dying alcoholic father's bedside as he passes away, just because you want him to know his love, it compels us. The Holy Spirit, when we let him into us, compels us to love in a way we never could do on our own strength. And one of the reasons we can do this in such an audacious way is the fourth thing is because we know our victory is secure. We're not giving up ground when we love like that. No, no, no. We are declaring we already know who wins. We already know the end of the story, and that is why we can love this way. John sixteen thirty three says this, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus just declared it. He's like, I win. You're going to have trouble. You're going to have hard days. You're going to have hard seasons. You're going to experience loss and sickness and death. But don't lose heart. You're going to have peace in the midst of it because I've overcome the world. I win. And this changes everything. How many of you guys have ever dvr a sports game or TV show that you so anticipated watching and someone comes and spoils it for you? You guys know what I'm talking about? It's literally happened at my house on Tuesday night. We had a welcome dinner. Many of you guys came out to it. And uh, we're watching at the very end of the meeting. There's like the half pipe going on at the Olympics and Sean White's going. And Anna Buffini, who was leading worship tonight, uh, was, was there. And, and so she's watching. And she's like, okay, I got to go home. And I, gotta, I recorded it. I can't wait to see who wins. And, and right as she's saying that, Chris Males walks into the room. And he's like, isn't it great that Sean White won? And just like... No, because what happened in that moment, the show didn't erase, but the tension and the drama was sucked out of it. Can I tell you, friends, we already know who wins, and that should dramatically change how we live our life because it sucks the drama and the tension and the fear and the anxiety right out of it. It's so funny to me, and this is me, as a, as a Christian, as someone who follows Jesus, who knows this up here, how often it doesn't make it the 18 inches down to my heart. Because I wake up and I'm anxious and I think, I'm like, "Oh my gosh, what's going to happen? Is it going to be OK? Is this going to turn out?" And then I'm anxious because I'm trying to control the outcome when Jesus already declared on the cross, "It is finished. I already told you the outcome. You don't have to watch the football game wondering who's going to win. You get to watch it knowing who's going to win, and it does something different inside of you. How much more should Christians live their lives differently? Because we already know the outcome. We already know that no matter what happens to us in this world, that nothing could rob us of the victory Jesus promised us on the cross. It's been given to us. And if we meditate, and this is why this sermon is so important, it's why this message is so important because if we think every single day about how this story ends, it'll change how we live this story today. It crushes fear, anxiety, uncertainty, and it welcomes peace in a way that nothing else could. So, but here's, the, here's kind of the final question that we have to talk about, and it's an important one. If that's the case, if our victory is sure and we know the ending, what's the ending? How does this story end? Now, you might know, like, uh, heaven, but, but no, no, no. If you cannot vividly describe how the end is, then it will never capture your imagination. It will change what you think and how you believe. So this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna read Uh, the the second to last chapter of scripture, and we're gonna begin to let this new image and this new picture begin to take shape in our minds of what this actually is. So if you have a Bible, um, or you can look up on the screen, turn to Revelation 21, but if you have a Bible, underline it, right? Copy and paste it. I mean, find a way to get this in front of your eyes all the time. Don't ever lose sight of this passage of scripture because it matters for today, It's Revelation 21. This is the end. If you're looking for it, literally turn to your last page in your Bible and turn left, like one page. It's right there. It's the very end of the story. And this is John, who is one of the apostles, is stranded on an island. He's exiled there. He's at the end of his life, and he has this vision of the end. And he's writing this letter to the churches in the area. And these churches, this is important, are not having an amazing church service under some market lights in Encinitas, California. These people are having church in hiding in probably a dark kind of mud brick building for fear of their life because they've already had relatives stripped from them and thrown to lions or crucified or burned. This is what following Jesus looked like to the early church. It cost them everything. And so the book of Revelation was never supposed to be about, like, well, you know, is there seven years of tribulation and what is the dragon? No, no, it was supposed to be hope for them right then. The dragon gets defeated, the beast gets defeated, and that beast was Caesar. It was this emperor that was trying to crush the church at that time. And at the end of this incredible vision, this is what he describes. Now, let's imagine we're that early church who is hoping that there is a reason why you've given your whole life to this thing and this is what it describes then i saw a heaven and a new a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Listen to this. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who has seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is I am the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end to the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life remember you're sitting there As a recently converted follower of Jesus, and you don't know if you're going to live tomorrow, but you hear these words that there is a day when God's dwelling place, the new heaven, the earth, will come here. Notice that it is not an evacuation. This is not saying someday you're going to heaven. No, No, no. This is a redemption. Someday God's coming here in His fullness. He's ready for the wedding. And I, and I love this. There's this obscure passage, this obscure verse at the very, very beginning. He's talking about this new heaven, this new earth, and he says this random thing. In the very beginning, it says this, and there will be no more sea. Did you guys pick that up? What a random thing to say. And as a surfer, I was personally disappointed when I read that. Uh, I literally just got a new surfboard this week, and I was just really stoked on it. I'm like, really? I got to read this verse this week? And I'm like, what's the point? Why would he say there's no more sea? And so I'm looking at this and I'm reading some different scholars and what they said. And if you look back at Revelation chapter four, this is what it says in Revelation chapter four. It says, also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. The first image that John has of the current heaven is one of Jesus on the throne, but there's still a moat. There's this glass sea in front of him that's separating the holiness of God and him. And isn't that still the conflict, right? There's still the separation that we lost it at the garden and we desperately are longing to be reunited, not just with with God, but everything that comes with him, his perfect peace and shalom and everything in its right order. But there's a separation, but there is coming a day when there'll be no more sea. There's no more separation, dividing. And, And that's exactly what it starts talking about. It starts talking about that God's dwelling place, will be with man in, in the fullness. and talks about there's this wedding garment that we wear, his righteousness. And I love this in a loud voice. By the way, there's 21 times it says that in Revelation. This is the 21st time. And if you know anything about how Jews write, they use numbers to signify something. And 21 is three sevens, meaning this is, this is it. The whole point of Jesus saying, the Lord said in a loud voice, the thing he wants you to hear louder than anything is that God is now with man. And I love it. the very, listen to this, the very first thing, that God does when he's reunited fully and purely with man it says he wipes away every tear from their eye I mean do you ever think about that like this is the first time The first time that God and his creation is reunited together, fully unpolluted, unrestrained for the first time. And the first thing he does is he doesn't set up worship systems. He doesn't set up his throne. The very first thing that this God does when he's reunited with his children is he starts wiping tears away. He brings comfort as the first executive order of King Jesus. I mean, I don't know any other God that promises that kind of unrestrained love and compassion for his people who, frankly, do not deserve it. And I love it because it says in the nations are coming. This isn't just for Israel, right? This is for everyone. By the way, this is why racism is such a big deal to God. Because when there's racism on earth, it does not portray heaven accurately. It matters to God because when this happens, this is everyone, every nation, all the rulers of the nations will be under one place, united because of what Jesus Christ has done. And the book ends with this. If you skip down a few verses to verse 22, it says, I did not see a temple in this city Remember, the temple represents God's restrained presence. This is where it always has been. And 11 John says, I don't see a temple there. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it and no, and no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. Listen to that. There will be no night there. The glory and honor of all the nations we brought into. I mean, what an amazing picture. Rise right? says, There's no more sun, there's no more moon in this place. The Lamb itself will be the light for everything to see. Can you imagine a place where there are no shadows? None. Because a shadow signifies that light is coming from one source. But because there will be no temple, there is not one source of God's presence. It is now everywhere with man, meaning light is everywhere. It says the gates are never going to be shut. There will be no need for protection, right? There will be no need to take the enemy and and hoard him off and to make sure he doesn't enter in. There will be no more night in this place. Everything will be brought back together. And there's such an amazing imagery of that. As I was reading this, I was, I was reminded of one of my favorite uh, stories that has been turned... It was a book uh, written by a French author, turned into a play and then turned into a movie in 2012 called Les Miserables. And it's one of my favorite stories because it's a story of redemption. And the story of redemption the resolution at the end is people coming together from all different age stages, nations, and they're not war-torn, they're not broken, but on top of the rubble, they sing a song of victory. So if you haven't seen it, I'm just going to show a quick clip from this movie. It's just, and it's going to pale in comparison, but just as an image, just to stir our hearts, just to say, there will be a day where everything will be made right.